This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Speaking to his flock in the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon, we join Archbishop Alexander Sample as he reflects upon our faith, culture, and life in the church on The Voice of the Shepherd. Joining Archbishop Sample is your host, Dina Marie Hale. And now, The Voice of the Shepherd. Greetings and welcome to The Voice of the Shepherd. I'm your host, Dina Marie Hale, and with me today is Bishop Peter Smith. And on this conversation today, we're going to talk a little bit about renewal in the church, renewal in our lives, but really a renewal in our Catholic faith. Welcome back, Bishop Smith, to The Voice of the Shepherd. Great to be with you, Dina Marie, and all the folks who are listening on Day Radio in whatever format whatever uh, stream, whatever situation you are listening in, we are glad to have you with us and that you are supporting Catholic Radio in the Northwest. There's a transition in the air with summer to fall, back to school is here. I've been seeing in many parish bulletins uh, the picnics and just the gatherings and people coming back together, whether you're preschool or off to college, family life is getting very busy. And I thought this would be a wonderful opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, a subject you mentioned to a group of men from the Queen of Peace Parish community, uh, most recently, renewal in the Catholic Church, and, and maybe renewal in our own lives, but also how we see that expressed in the Catholic faith. From the very beginning, the church has always been in a state of renewal, and that's partly because we aren't static as a church and we aren't static as human beings. We are continuing to grow and uh, along our journey of faith with the Lord and with one another in the church. When you look at renewal in the church, if you look at it from a historical perspective, you see the Holy Spirit at work in the life of the church and in the life of believers changes because of the circumstances of the situation. So on a macro level, you can say the culture, the change in the culture, the change in the age, the change in the time, God works differently in those circumstances because he has to speak to people who are in the midst of those circumstances in those cultures. So God will act somewhat differently in different places and times and situations, but the message is always the same. So for example, uh, one of the things we can look at is the the uh, massive, probably the greatest conversion that happened after the uh, appearance of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Right. And so the Blessed Mother appears in the form of an indigenous Mexican. And so that leads to a conversion. That spoke to those people in that time. In other places, God speaks differently. So what I did with the Queen of Peace men's group, and it was great to be with them. It was a wonderful discussion. I just did a survey just briefly through the history of the church and how you see the Holy Spirit working Mm -hmm. and bringing about renewal in the church in different ages and times. So it'll take a few minutes here, but let's do that. So at the very beginning, you have Jesus and the apostles and the disciples. So Pentecost happens, and they go out proclaiming the good news. Well, there's opposition to this. 
by the end of the first century, there were probably only uh, twenty to 30,000 Christians total. Mm. You know, we think of this thing as a, a massive growth, exponential growth, but it was hard sledding. And about two-thirds of those 30,000 people became Christians because of the witness of the Christians in the Roman Empire during the plagues, whereas most people fled, Christians stayed and cared for those who were suffering. And that drew the attention of many, including one of the emperors who was persecuting them. So Christians were a church that lived in houses or underground, suffering persecution and so on. And so the church wasn't the way we see it today. It was house churches, underground churches, uh, people suffering for their belief. Then, of course, you have the Edict of Constantine in 313, and so the church is recognized. So now the church starts organizing in society. So you've moved from this apostolic phase and the early church fathers phase now into a phase where you still have the church fathers, but the church is organizing mm-hmm. um, structurally and otherwise. So you have now we have church buildings where we meet. Now we start having more formal bishops and priests and deacons and religious, the religious develop a little later, but you start to have all those things emerging. And as a result of all that, people start looking around and saying, people have lost their fire. People's commitment Mm -hmm. is growing low. So you had folks going out into the desert, and that's where you have Antony of the Desert and probably equally or more importantly, Pacomius, because they all went out as hermits, but the reality is, as human beings, there are very few of us who are really hermits. You know, we might say we want to be a hermit, but we do that on our own terms, um, for the most part. And Pacomius started gathering people together, and you started to have the emergence of monasticism. So, and you had Basil in the east, and uh, in the west, the, the the person who was the father of it was Benedict. So that's the emergence of the Benedictines. And so this became a way of living a life, a really committed life of faith. But it's in a rural agrarian society. And so you have these two approaches, which are much more austere in the East. Basil Great has a little phrase in one of his constitutions, the, the, the monk's life is a continual lant. Now, St. <laughs> St. Benedict, <laughs> I used to tease the Benedictines at Mount Angel about that all the time. And they would politely remind me that uh, St. Benedict had a different approach, mm-hmm. which is moderation and in all things, including moderation. <laughs> uh, Benedict had a, had, had a different approach, but that became a way. This is how you live the gospel if you're really serious. So around about the 1200s, 1100s, what happens, in, in particularly in Europe, you have the development of towns, then cities, then universities. So how do you live the gospel in those settings? So you have the emergence. Again, the Holy Spirit works in a, a little bit of a different way. And so you have the emergence of the mendicants, and the most famous of which are the Dominicans and the Franciscans, which are fascinating because they're two very different ways of responding to a need in the culture there and at the time. And there was a third move that happened as well that started before that, which was Benedictines who started to say, we need to go back to living the original rule, but much more strictly. So that's where you get the Cistercians and people like that coming from. They wanted to go back and do, do it more fervently or strictly. And this is one of the two impulses that you have in these situations. The Holy Spirit leads some to 
go mm-hmm. back and, and recover what we did before and do it more fervently, or others to how do we react to what God is doing in the midst of this, and how is God reacting? So you have both the Dominicans and the Franciscans with two radically different approaches. The Dominicans said, we need to start learning. And the Franciscans said, we need a life of radical poverty so we don't get corrupted by the world. And they lived in friaries, so they still have their community, but they're in the cities now. They're not living out in the country, and they're taking people care of people in the cities. So you have that sort of burgeoning development. And then as you go along, you have the rise of European nationalism and the Reformation, which are intertwined. And so suddenly there's this explosion and things blow apart. And then after the Reformation, you have the emergence of groups like the Jesuits, so, which was a radical change because the Jesuits, they had to fight for it. It uh, was denied them for a while. But they're not obliged to pray the office together like Benedictines do or Franciscans or Dominicans do if they're living in a priory. So their whole focus was mission and action. And so you had this whole new focus of what was going on. And in the sort of post-Reformation era, you had a uh, counter-Reformation where you started having a whole bunch of other things dealt with in the church. So the Holy Spirit's now working differently. And in this time, you start to see women's communities for the first time starting to become active. You know, Up to that point, women's communities were almost always contemplative, and part of it was a safety issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you now start to see a mission focus for some of the first uh, active women's communities, usually dealing with the poor or a woman who had been li- living a life of ill repute, repute and trying to bring them in and save them. So you you sort of come down through that, and then you have a whole series of things that happen uh, in terms of how you live. You have the Enlightenment that comes. You have the colonial era. So now you have all these missionary orders going out. And again, more and more women religious becoming involved um, in in the missions, the beginnings of lay involvement in these things. You have the Industrial Revolution, which was something completely different. So now you have all these people in a, in a somewhat agrarian society coming to the cities and living in squalor. And so you have communities and then lay people rising up and forming associations to, to continue the mission of the church and dealing with those folks. And then we sort of move into the, the 20th century and you start to see the emergence more and more and more of the role of the laity in the church, which um, is essentially turbocharged by Vatican II. And after Vatican II, you have this explosion of lay movements in the church, uh, which is lay people uh, rightfully taking their rightful place in supporting and continuing the mission of the church. And now as we've gone from there, and we're now moving into, at least in the Western world, uh, sort of the, a post-Christian era, now things are changing again, mm-hmm. and so how do you live as a church in the midst of this? So what you see is the Holy Spirit working in a different way in each of these situations because the Lord encounters us in the circumstances of our lives and speaks to us in the circumstances of our lives in ways that we can understand. You see Jesus doing this. Mm-hmm. So that's renewal in the church, and in our own lives of faith, you see this from the beginning, 
just like in the macro scale you see the church, we have eras or periods or times in our lives where our faith is strong and vibrant, and then for whatever reason, you know, we change, what we're dealing with changes, and we need to be renewed constantly. You know, when I work with couples who are, who are having difficulty in their marriage and I hear this comment, well, this isn't the same person I married, and mm. I want to say thank God <laughs> because if we stayed the same as we were from that moment, I mean, firstly, it would be boring as all get out, mm -hmm. but whereas human beings, we evolve, we develop, we grow. People say, I wish I could be a teenager again. I, th I think about that, and I say the only way I'll ever go back <laughs> no. to being a teenager is if I could take all the knowledge, experience, and self-confidence I have now back with me. Otherwise, no way. <laughs> right. So we evolve and we grow, and the mm -hmm. Lord works with us in our journey of life and comes to us in different ways. And I know from my own life, when I look back, how, how the Lord has worked and how do I experience God in my life. You know, one my early phases of faith, it was God was real, but in the distance. And then God became very, very real through the person of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And then years later, that's now, in this time of my life, I, I see and experience God much more as a loving father. So God works with us in different ways, and that's a wonderful sign of his mercy. God doesn't take a one-size-fits-all. In his mercy, in his kindness, in his goodness for each one of us, he comes to us in a way that we are best able to apprehend and understand and hear and listen and respond. Mm -hmm. Bishop Smith with us on The Voice of the Shepherd, talking about renewal in the church, really the presence of the Holy Spirit through all time in the church and the signs of the times. And as we think about, and you mentioned Pentecost, where we really get this sense through the Gospels and through mostly the Acts of the Apostles, really these accounts of when Jesus says, okay, I'm going to leave you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. There's an advocate. There's a guidance. There's an instructor. There's somebody who will inform, who will educate, who will comfort. I think about that comforter of the Holy Spirit, but maybe give us some sense of that role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but also in the lives of the church, the bishops, the priests, the leaders in the church to help guide the church um, so it doesn't go astray. Well, we have that promise from Jesus that the, he is with us until the end of time and that the church, the, the, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. So Jesus is with us and we have that. We have the presence of Christ we have the, the revelation of Jesus. We have the revelation that comes to us through scriptures. We have the magisterium of the church that guarantees that. So we have that promise and that commitment for us. So that's a great place to start with. But what the Holy Spirit does is, in a sense, what did the Holy Spirit do for the apostles and disciples? It's really interesting when you look at the life of Jesus. Where do we fit in that spectrum? And not just ourselves as Catholics or other Christians or people of faith, but people in the world and all over. So when Jesus is born, what happens? Is everyone happy about it? No. Now, Herod wants to kill him because he sees him as a threat. And there are people who want to kill Christ and the presence of Christ anyway in the world. A vast majority of the people there were like, ho-hum, who's this? What's this about? 
and we see that around us too. People couldn't be bothered. 85% of Americans believe in God, 25% live of God as if God actually matters in their lives. It's ho-hum. Yeah, and then Jesus begins his public ministry. What do we see? We see crowds going out, but why are they going out? So you see, in the crowds who go out, most of them are not followers of Jesus, they're fans. Mm-hmm. You know, so we are fans, we can be fans of the Portland Timbers. So we go out, we, we go to the games, we have a good time, hopefully they win, there are other things around, we go home. But does that change our lives? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. Uh, unless we become obsessed with them, in which case we got another problem, you know, trying to uh, live out our emotional well-being through something like that. But what, what it does is it entertains us. And you see people who go out to Jesus, the great miracle healer, the great teacher, we want to be entertained, we want to be blessed, but we don't become followers. But some do. So some become followers of Jesus. And then the next thing that happens is when it's easy to follow Jesus, we follow him. And then what happens when Jesus asks some tough things of us, like the rich young man? Mm-hmm. Go and sell all your possessions and come follow me. And he couldn't do that. He couldn't let go of something that would make him radically free to follow Jesus. It's interesting. Jesus' response, Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus is sad because he looks at what could have been but wasn't. But then you also see Jesus saying things like, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you cannot have life within you. And they all look at him like, you're nuts, man. And they leave. And Jesus looks at the apostles, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. I'm sure Peter didn't understand what Jesus meant when he said, unless you eat my body and drink my blood. But the response is wonderful. It's effectively he's saying, Jesus I have no idea what this means, but I know you at least to the degree that I do, and I'm sticking with you. So you have that moment, and yet those same people, you know, at the Last Supper, Jesus washes the twelve's feet, knowing that one's going to betray him. Uh, ten more are going to abandon him at the cross. Peter is going to deny him three times. You know, so there's you have that situation that happens there, and yet Jesus continues, and then after he... Uh, the resurrection happened, he, he reveals himself to them and helps them overcome what happened. But then he tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit. But that they, so here they are, they know, they've, they've been with Jesus for three years, they've seen this, they've experienced all this, knowing and seeing and experiencing all this, they're still afraid, they're timid, they're they're living in their own communities, t- community turned in on themselves out of fear or whatever it is. And it was when Pentecost happens that they become changed people. They're changed men and women, and they go out, and they go and proclaim the gospel. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What, the Holy Spirit empowers them, but the Holy Spirit does something else. The Holy Spirit, as Jesus said, is another advocate. So the Holy Spirit makes Christ vividly present, the Father vividly present in our lives, empowers us so that we can go out and live as Jesus calls us to, serve as he serves, and continue his mission in this world. That's the reason we do what we do. And the Holy Spirit helps us to the degree that we allow it because Mm -hmm. we're free. God gives us freedom. God does not overwhelm our freedom. 
but the Holy Spirit helps us as we grow in life become more brightly shining living witnesses of faith because that's the ultimate evangelistic tool, being a living witness of faith. Paul VI had a very interesting quote in his encyclical Evangelium Nuntiandi where he said, modern man listens more readily uh, to witnesses than he does to teachers. And when he listens to teachers, it is because they are witnesses. And so that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. Now, there's a whole lot more that goes into that. Right. But the Holy Spirit empowers apostles and disciples, makes Christ present, makes God present in such a way that we continue the mission of Jesus. If you look at the scriptures, it's fascinating. What you see Jesus doing, healing the sick, raising the dead, performing miracles, casting out evil spirits, proclaiming the good news, you see the same thing in the apostles and disciples. And that's the Holy Spirit making Christ present in them, making them witnesses in the world around them. Right. So that's the role of the Holy Spirit in, in individually and corporately as a church. And so that's what we believe. The Holy Spirit is at work in a papal election. The Holy Spirit is at work uh, in the guidance of the church and so on. I'll give you one quick story about that. Um, I spoke to some a cardinal who was at a, who voted and was present at a papal election and I won't mention the name of the, the pope, but he said that they, the, the, the day before this particular pope was elected, nobody had any certainty about who, who would be elected. And he said, we, he said, we came in the next morning, and he said the only, it's the most stunning experience of the Holy Spirit he's ever had. He said it was like mist rising from a river in an early morning. You know, when the temperature difference and you have the mist rising, he said, suddenly it just seemed everybody was saying the same name. <laughs> and they went in and voted, and this particular person was elected pope. So the Holy Spirit guides and works in those moments. Yeah. So it's a wonderful guarantee that we have been given by the Trinity that they are with us always. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we begin our initiation in the Christian family with baptism, you know, and I just think about how beautiful that first initiation. We need fuel. We, we know so much as we drive and we heat, our, we heat in, the, in the winter and we cool in the summer. We need fuel. But the Holy Spirit is like the ultimate fuel. But we don't just get it once at baptism, confirmation, through the sacraments, in prayer, uh, we have to have a continual uh, fueling and refueling of the Holy Spirit to stay on track. Think about it in terms of a relationship in, between, uh, say, a husband and a wife or two good friends. If that relationship is working well and you spend more and more time with each other and hang out with each other, you fuel each other's friendship, affection, and love for one another. And the same thing's true with the Holy Spirit and, with, and our life of faith. If we want to have keep fueling that, we have to spend time. And baptism is our foundational sacrament. Everything else follows from there because not only is sin washed away, but we have a new identity in the Lord. We are still who we are with our zaniness and all the rest, 
but we now have an identity as a son and or daughter of God the Father, a brother and sister of Jesus Christ and part of the great family of faith. And we're baptized into the, the common priesthood of Christ, including his mission. And it all flows from there. And it all flows from there. Again, the gift of the Holy Spirit. It seems like this would be a beautiful time for us, Bishop Smith, to really continue to pray and to cooperate with the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the times that we have, that we're facing today. Yes, very much so. Uh, we need the Lord's guidance. So often we, we do things that we, we decide we're going to do these, <laughs> and we ask God to bless it instead of saying, Holy Spirit, give us your wisdom, give us your guidance. What are you inviting us to consider doing? The first things may be wonderful things, but it may not be what the Lord's first choice for us in that situation would be. Yeah. Well, if we're thinking about renewal or reform, let's start with come Holy Spirit. And Bishop Smith, thanks for spending some time with us today on The Voice of the Shepherd. Would you help us close this time with your blessing? Certainly. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, we thank you for your great love and kindness to us and especially for the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would continue to fan that gift into a flame in our lives, that we would become more and more brightly shining living witnesses of your light and your presence in a world that so desperately needs it. And may we ask you to bless us all now in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mary, untire of knots. Pray for us. Pray for us. And thank you all for joining us today on The Voice of the Shepherd. We look forward to sharing with you again next week. For Bishop Peter Smith, I'm Dina Marie Hale. And until our next encounter, may God bless you. You've been listening to The Voice of the Shepherd with Archbishop Alexander Sample, a production of the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon. To subscribe to this podcast and access to all of our past shows, visit moderndayradio.com. Please email your comments and questions for the show to info at archdpdx.org. Learn more about the Archdiocese of Portland in Oregon online at archdpdx.org. Peace be with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can support this vital mission of evangelization through materdayradio.com or the Hail Mary Media app. And thank you for helping us lead souls to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary.